has the Damazaria family took a grand total of a grand total of 34 days to get from Washington DC to Darwin and that included 16,000 kilometers or over 16,000 kilometers of flying uh, around 4,600 kilometers and 50 hours of driving and a total of 24 days of quarantine in Sydney and in uh, it also included a breakdown in the middle of nowhere in New South Wales. Uh, right there. I'm oh, sorry, it goes back to the map. That's where it was. So there, those are the GPS coordinates of the very place that we, uh, <laughs> we were broken down on the side of the road. And there are pictures of us during the day uh, trying to figure out what was wrong with that car and uh, in the evening as we awaited uh, our rescue. And so that's. Where we were, the reason we broke down was because our fuel gauge said we had three quarters of a tank of fuel left. Um, and I did not know that when you're towing a loaded up trailer that reduces your fuel economy by 30%. So, uh, I know that lesson now. <laughs> uh, at the time, I didn't know that that's what the problem was, uh, but uh, that is where we ended up. And we were out there in the middle of nowhere, certainly. Unfortunately, our phones were out of reception, so we weren't able to call anybody to actually come and rescue us, and there weren't many cars going past on that road. Um, and so after we were almost resigned to uh, setting up our tents on the side of the road, just a bit further away from the highway, uh, we decided that we'd you know, we'll try and wave somebody down and get some help. And thankfully, we did, and uh, the gentleman that came and saved us uh, he had a signal booster on his car and we were called to get uh, rescue without predicaments. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Guys, generally, you have the propensity to not want to ask for help. I'm sure you probably have. A situation where you've been stuck or lost. I'm not just talking about a situation where perhaps you need some help or when you kind of need something. It's a situation where you are completely helpless, where you yourself are unable to bring yourself out of your situation, and you are entirely dependent on somebody else to save you. Well, this morning our passage reminds us that that is the state of all of you. That all of us, every single one, is in great need. Now you might not know this, you might not realize that this is the case, but the Bible tells us that every human being is in precisely this state. It tells us that we are lost and stranded, and that we are helpless in a way that surpasses any kind of survival situation you have ever come across. The worst of that, the Bible tells us we are in an even worse state, because of our sin. We are desperately aggressive. And so this passage reminds us that there is only one rescuer who can rescue us, and we need to respond to him. So, as we work through this passage this morning, uh, I want to ask you how will you respond to the one who rescues us? As we 
we dive into this text, uh, I'm going to make two points, and they each have some points. The first of it is, uh, the first point is that God alone rescues us. God Now this point is crucial for us to grasp because uh, this is the engine that drives the entire passage that we just read in the opening uh, nine verses. And so to begin, uh, allow me to give you a little bit of background to this letter. Uh, because uh, this is, after all, the first of a new series that our church is doing in the book of 1 Corinthians. And the reason I want to tell you this information is because give you this background is because it's not just interesting information, uh, but as one commentator says, uh, knowing the social and cultural background of Corinth and the people of Corinth uh, will profoundly impact the way you actually read this book. Uh, and so we're going to do that, obviously, all along as we work our way through the book, uh, but I'm going to begin with some basics to paint a, 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 a sketch of it a picture. So <clears throat> Corinth was a Greek city initially, uh, and it was actually destroyed by the Romans uh, in the 2nd century BC. Uh, but then it had new life breathed into it when Julius Caesar decided that he wanted to rebuild it as a Roman colony. And so he did that at around 44 BC. And uh, Corinth was situated, uh, I just realized, yeah, I put that in the wrong <laughs> Corinth was situated strategically along the Mediterranean, as you can see here. Uh, people, you know, ships wanting to come through the ocean, they would much rather do this and then, you know, they had boats and stuff and you could kind of float a bit harder and keep going around rather than sailing all the way around uh, in order to get to the other side. Very much like the Panama Canal today, uh, where ships will uh, go through that canal so that they don't have to sail all the way down around South America. Uh, so Corinth was very situated very strategically and so that led to it becoming a very prosperous city because uh, uh, it attracted a, a lot of people um, because they were able to tax all the merchants as they were going through. Uh, and so people from all over the Roman Empire would come uh, to, to try and make their fortunes in the city of Corinth. Uh, so if Sinatra was around, he would be saying, I'm going to wake up in the city that doesn't sleep, and that would be Corinth. Now, even though the worship of Roman gods, that was, uh, which included actually the worship of the emperor, uh, was the main religion, Corinth, because of this factor, ended up being a real melting pot, a mixed uh, group of people uh, that were all mingling together with lots of different worldviews and religions and, and um, perspectives on life. And this, of course, included Jews as well. And we read in Acts 18 about how the local Jews were upset with Paul, because it was talking about Jesus, and they tried to take him to the council of Corinth. Corinth, uh, you know, as, as magnificent as this might sound, certainly had its fair share of problems. And some of those are very relevant to this level. For one, that social status meant a whole lot to Corinthians. They really prized highly uh, those who were rich or powerful or very knowledgeable, uh, or well-connected. Uh, and if you had any of these sorts of things, then that granted you very high esteem in the eyes of the average person. 
It was created quite a, as you can imagine, a significant divide between the rich and the poor. And it led to social cliques where people, you know, they didn't really associate much with the person they considered. Another was the fact that uh, sexual promiscuity was rife through the city of Corinth. Uh, so much so that it was very much part of their reputation, uh, much like you might say Las Vegas has that reputation. And most relevant to our passage this morning, uh, the Corinthians, they also prize spirituality and, and wisdom in spiritual things. And so if you were learned in these areas, uh, then that would gain you a fair amount of respect. And so because of this, humility wasn't, you know, it was something that was a Basically, Corinth was a bustling metropolis by ancient standards. Would be the equivalent today of something like a New York or a London or maybe even As you probably tell from the description of the student, the issues that Paul faced in the Corinthian church well, are very much alive and well They're very much the same issues that we face today. So even though now in, uh, in, in, uh, being considered a metropolis by today's standards, there's certainly no doubt that we face some of those things. And uh, as I tell, told you before, uh, I mention these things because it sets us up nicely to explore this book. And it also sets us up nicely to understand this passage. So, if you've got your Bibles in front of you, we'll continue to go through them. We begin with. Paul's greeting. If you've read any of Paul's other letters in the Bible, then you'll recognize that this greeting sounds pretty similar to other ones that he did. Uh, but knowing the background of Corinth, as I said, really, uh, and the issues, really makes this opening nine verses just pop. The first way we recognize that is right from the head go, the way that Paul actually introduces himself. Uh, you can see that he's really pressing against the spiritual pride that was in the Corinthian church. And if you go to 1 Corinthians 9, you'll see that the Corinthian church was doubting Paul's apostleship. They were uh, not really sure whether he was qualified for the people. And so Paul, here in verse 1, says, he is an apostle that is called by the will of God. Called by the will of God. And so you cannot dispute that authority. He's saying, you, you can't just argue with me that, that no, I'm not called by God. And so, uh, even just that little phrase right there told you that to the Corinthians uh, that you can't speak who is and the, the office that God is I'm not sure who Sosthenes is. It could be the same Sosthenes mentioned in Acts 18, but either way, uh, we know that he was clearly a companion of Paul's at this time, and he was probably known as the Corinthians. But you notice that he doesn't get the same title that Paul does. He doesn't say Paul and Sosthenes, the apostles Paul by the will of God. And there's a clear distinction between the two. Uh, and most importantly for our passage, uh, the other way that we see that Paul is addressing this, this issue of spiritual pride uh, is the emphasis that he gives to God being the one who brought about their faith. He's a clear focus that he makes right through this passage. 
does so because the Corinthians, they were so intent on seeing their sophisticated spiritual sophistry as something that they would wear as a badge of honor. So Paul squashes any notion of them being able to boast in their own spirituality right from the beginning. Now, mind you, Paul, he's not being underhanded here. He's not paying them fake and false compliments. But he's, he's greasing a grace to you uh, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 3. That is a genuine reason. He loves the church. He loves the people in. Uh, but through all of this and making this focus on the sovereignty of God in salvation, he's pastorally, lovingly, and subtly addressing this root sin. And so, as I said, he makes this point like, oh, this point of is about faith. Have a look in your Bibles at these phrases. In verse 2, those sanctified who had been sanctified from, from something outside, and those called to be saints. In verse 4, the grace of God that was given you. In verse five, 5, that you were enriched, not you enriched yourself. In verse 6, the testimony about Christ that was, was confirmed among you. In verse 8, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you. In verse 9, God is Faithful by whom you were. It's an unmistakable emphasis that Paul makes that, that the grace that the Corinthians have received, the, the spirituality that they have received, has come not from themselves. Paul is making clear that God is the primary agent, the source of salvation, and the giver of grace, the redeemer. We need to grasp that point. It's crucial for us to understand that God alone rescues us. And as I said before, when we are being rescued, who are helpless. You know, people don't call AAMT uh, if they can solve their own problems while they're in the middle of the island. They call them here in this stuff. of God making us more and more holy throughout the course of our lives. 
And that's a helpful term, and I certainly encourage the use of that term, biblical truth, but that is not uh, the sense that Paul is using the word sanctified. And how do we know that that's not what Paul's talking about? Well, what's the sense of the word? <laughs> that, that, that's what I said, but it's actually perfect, but it's kind of you know, <laughs> the perfect sense. That's right, it's, as in, this is referring to something that has been completed and is now a reality. Right? Paul doesn't say to those being sanctified, which he certainly could have said. He's using this term here to refer to the fact that a person is sanctified as a word of God's grace when they put their faith in Jesus. He is done. They are sanctified in Christ Jesus. And so we see here right at the beginning, the church is made up of people who have done this. People who have been sanctified. People who God has graciously changed from spiritually dead sinners to sanctified sinners. But all this is up there. How else does God rescue us? He rescues us by holiness. By holiness. Uh, earlier this week, uh, in our house, in the Bell Bernardo Long household, Hugh held up a banana to his, to his uh, ear and pretended it was a phone. He was talking to somebody and he tried to get me to answer the call and he was not interested. <laughs> uh, but then he tried to get Zai to answer the call and he was more than happy to reply and talk to everyone else on the other This term call uh, in uh, our modern use and in our culture uh, actually is so often so easily misunderstood. We often think of calling uh, as something that we were you know, made to do. People talk about how it's my calling to go and rescue people or go and be a fireman or whatever it might be. We think that uh, if, we, if we fulfill our calling, then, then we will be completely happy and satisfied. Now that's a conversation for another time, but that is not what Paul is talking about when he refers to calling. In verse 1, he talked about being called to be an apostle by the will of God. And so, in this sense, Paul is not talking about the fact that, that he can choose to answer a call on like, like a phone call. No, he's saying that God has called him as part of his will. And so, this calling will happen. It will be responded to. And so, in verse 2, we have the same sense of the word. Called to be sent. The ones who are sanctified in Christ, they are the ones who are called to be saints together. Now remember that the main point under which this subpoint is, is that God alone rescues us. He is the source of salvation. And so when we talk about God calling, this is a this type of call is in this sense is one that He calls and He will be a response to. So we see this same use of the word call in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, perhaps in its clearest form, where it says, Those whom He predestined, He also called, and those whom He called, He also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. 
Salvation is a process that begins and ends with God. And calling is a key part of that process. Now, I'm sure for some of us, at least, there are some questions or objections that you might uh, have popping up in your mind that you ask me to lay those aside for the time being and just sit in the street with you. You go. You can ask or raise those uh, questions on so God calls, that call is So finally, let's also have a look at how uh, Paul uses this term in verse 9, where he says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ. God is faithful. That reminds us of a language that is used in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps and keep his commandments. It's this idea that Paul picks up on that God is faithful to his people. You can trust him and he will carry out what he has promised. This same God who calls his people into his church and sanctifies them in his son. If you look through this passage, you also see that Paul mentions Jesus a lot. There are as many mentions of Jesus in this passage as there are verses. There are nine mentions. And so here we see that God is emphasizing that it is into fellowship with Jesus that way. That's what verse 9 is making clear, that we're not called into some kind of vain God of love fellowship, but fellowship through Jesus. And it's through Christ Jesus that God's grace is given to his people. So that's the next part of the rescue that we see in Christ. And God rescues us by his grace. So what we see in verses 3 4? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Now, if I was to ask you uh, what you think sets Christianity apart from every other belief, from every other religion, what would you say? You say that Christianity is different because it's all about love. You say uh, that it's different because it's anchored in historical events, in historical Jesus, who really did live and die and raise Christ from the You say perhaps it's because in Christianity your sins can be forgiven. Well, those things are certainly true. But they can still miss the point. Right here in this verse is the heart of Christianity. And Paul really wants this to hit home with the Corinthians because of their spiritual life. These proud Corinthians who thought the knowledge was just so brilliant. He thought 
Uh, they were had plenty of boast about because of their great spirituality. And Paul reminded them that they didn't come to faith because of that. Oh, no, no, it's a work. It's God who gave it to them. Grace means that you, you didn't earn it. It means that you didn't work for it. It means that you didn't qualify for it. It means that you would suddenly manage to clear the bar. Grace means that it was given to you. God is the one who rescues by his grace. Paul was emphasizing that at the beginning of verse 4. And then he goes on. Let's read from verse 5. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift. Not only was their sanctification a gift of grace, but so were the very things that these Corinthians prized. That they've been enriched in all speech and knowledge, and they're not lacking in any gift. All is not denying. But he's reminding them and saying, these things have been given to you. Do you notice how uh, even though these are the very things that Paul will then go on to scold the Corinthians about? Have you still recognizes that God has graciously given to me, to the church? As the testimony of Christ was confirmed among you. That is, as they heard the message of the gospel and as they responded with repentance and faith in Jesus, God graciously called and sanctified them, graciously enriched them, and distributed his spiritual gifts. All of these things. And Paul is sending just a subtle reminder to the church of Corinth, which is a reminder that we would do well to remember. That is that it is by grace that God saves, grows, and gifts us as His people and as His church. It is by grace that God saves, grows, and gifts us as His people and as His church. When we realize this, we realize that we have no grounds to boast in our own merit. We have no grounds to boast in what we think we are so great at. And we realize that we cannot rely on our own strength. A final sub-point in this larger point. God alone rescues us by sustaining us. God alone rescues us by sustaining us. We talked last week about how there is an indefinite period of time between now and when we meet Jesus. None of us knows how long that period of time is going to be. We don't know when we're going to sleep and then wake up suddenly in the afterlife. And Paul, and so in the meantime, we wait for the revealing of our Lord. And so Paul goes on to talk about this uh, in his characteristic long-sentence way. Do you realize we're still in the same sentence from verse 4? <laughs> and we pick it up from uh, halfway through verse 7, where Paul says, As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that this is finally the end of that long sentence. But because it comes at the end of a long sentence, you notice it ties in with actually what everything that has been said before it. And Paul is thanking God always for God's grace to the Corinthians, which has redeemed and enriched them, and also as they now wait for the revealing of Jesus. Have you noticed that throughout uh, all of these points that he has made in these verses, that there's been a time factor going on in God's rescue plan? It covers the past, the present, and the future. God called and sanctified them by His grace. He did that in the past. He has enriched them in all speech and all knowledge and bestowed them with gifts that they continue to use today. And He now points to God's work of sustaining them until a day that is yet to come. That revealing of Christ. The day when He comes back again. That's what Paul's referring to. And the language of the day of the Lord uh, is common in the Old Testament. So, for example, in Zephaniah 1.7, it looks at and looks to the day of God's judgment. And the Bible talks about the day of the Lord as a day of of terrible judgment, where God's wrath will be poured out uh, on all sinfulness and wickedness. It is a, a terrible and frightening day. And what's incredible here is that Paul is taking that Old Testament phrase and referring to something which is well known to Jews, the day of the Lord, and he's inserting Jesus' name into it. You notice that? How he says, he doesn't just say the day of the Lord, he actually says the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. This would be blasphemy to the ears of a Jew, uh, to to equate a, a person with God. And that's, a, that's why the message of Jesus was just so radical. You can understand why the Jews were upset about what Paul was saying. And so in the midst of this talk about how Paul referring to and looking forward to that day, the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, that great and terrible day that Jesus will be revealed, in the midst of that, Paul drops this wonderful, incredible, promise. As you wait for that day, God will sustain you to the end. And He will do it so that you will be guiltless on that day. What a promise. Have you ever heard the phrase, once saved, always saved? Anybody? Sadly, that phrase has been hijacked by people who, uh, you know, want to live for themselves and still go to heaven. You know, they think that because they prayed a, a sinner's prayer one time in their life, and, now, and because they've done that, now, it, you know, hey, once saved, always saved. I prayed the prayer. That means I can do whatever I like. I'm sorted. And because of this tragic misunderstanding of that phrase of once saved, always saved, others have reacted to that by saying, no, 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 that's not the case. No, you know, you can't do that. 
They say, no, you, you can, actually, you can lose your salvation. And I'll say, you know, if you stop living as a good Christian boy or a good Christian girl, God will take his salvation away from you. I remember reading in a book, actually, where uh, somebody, the, the pastor said, no, no, I can't, I can't say once saved, always saved. That means, what am I going to pressure people with to stay in church and keep doing good things? They need that. And so then people hear this and constantly live in fear and in anxiety, thinking that perhaps I didn't pray enough today. Perhaps I, uh, I, you know, I, I've given in to temptation just one too many times and, and God's, He's going to run out of forgiveness. Friends, whichever side of those two extremes you lean towards, you must hear the text this morning. Let me speak to the latter anxious group first. Paul's words here, they are a balm to your soul. Are you sanctified? Have you responded to the grace of God with repentance and faith? Do you call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ? Do you turn and do you run to Him when you fall into sin? Do you keep drinking from His endless fountain of forgiveness? Take heart. God will sustain you. He will keep you to the end. Trust, rest, lean on Him. Cling to Him and don't let go. Because this work of sustaining you that Paul promises here, that he talks about sustaining you to the end is part of how God rescues His people. That's all part of that package. You remember in Romans 8.30, which we read before, those he justified, he also glorified. Can you imagine if, you know, the tow truck that came to rescue us in the middle of nowhere in New South Wales decided, yeah, actually, um, we're still about 200 k's from Cobar, from the nearest town, and I think I'm just going to drop you off here. You know, you, you guys can set up camp. Yeah, you'll be right, you know. We... What kind of rescue would that be? <laughs> it wouldn't be a rescue at all. That's not a rescue. It's just, that's just a half rescue, and that's, that's not rescue. <laughs> He's basically just kind of moved us further along into a more diff another difficult position. A proper rescue saves you completely. A complete rescue brings you to the final destination. As Paul would say in his letter to the Philippians... In a different way, he says, and I am sure of this, I must agree, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What a marvelous promise. That phrase, once saved, always saved, it's true. That is a true summary of what Scripture teaches. Because God rescuing you begins when God calls us and sanctifies us through faith in Christ and then finishes when He presents us guiltless before Him on the day of the Lord Jesus. The sad thing is that those who try to claim it, as we talked about before, and whose lives don't reflect it, 
Well, very likely, they're not Christians at all. They can't claim once saved, always saved, because they never were. To think that true faith and true salvation can be attained by just muttering a few words and then believing certain things about God and Jesus is one of the greatest lies of our generation that is damning thousands, if not millions, of people to hell. You cannot claim that you are saved if there is zero evidence that God is continuing His good work in your life. And please, please hear me clearly. I'm not, I'm not suggesting uh, that you need to meet some kind of arbitrary moral standard in order to prove that God is at work. I mean, just, just read the rest of 1 Corinthians. Uh, the church was, in an, was an utter mess. There's all sorts of sin running rampant among these Corinthian believers. And yet, even with that backdrop, even knowing that, that that's what Paul is about to go and talk about, this whole opening passage is just astounding to think that Paul is going to be saying these, can be saying these amazing things about how God is at work in them, even given all of the theological and the moral failures that he's about to address in this letter. I'm not suggesting that you need to be able to clear some kind of good works bar to prove that God is at work in your life. But I am saying that one of the evidences of sanctification is that He is indeed at work in your life. However small and however incremental that might seem, no matter how much you might feel like a, a mess up or a meathead for mucking it up again, lean on Him, trust in Him, Run to Him. He is ready and willing and able and loves to pour out His grace on you. Because God completes His rescue of His people by sustaining them to the end. And so, in light of the fact that God alone is the one who rescues us, my next main point is that we respond to Him. We respond to Him. As we've just seen, God is the great rescuer. It's all Him. And yet, there's a response that's called for on our part, isn't there? Now, people will often mock this doctrine of God's sovereignty in salvation by saying, sweet, I guess that means, well, if God's the one who's doing it, I don't have to do anything. You know, if He wants to save me, He will. If He doesn't, then He won't. You know, whatever. Who am I to stop Him? But that misunderstands the fact that the Bible teaches that God is the one who rescues and He calls upon us to respond. And we see pointers to that truth even in this short passage. And so, I have more sub-points. How do we respond to Him? Firstly, we do so by calling upon His name. By calling upon His name. Let's go back to verse 2 and remind ourselves of what is said there. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. With all those who in every place Call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
As I mentioned uh, in my story at the start, Robert and I, we had no reception. But when our new friend came along with his fancy signal booster on his car, we were able to call upon our rescuer, who in this case was the NRMA. And they were able to come and get us out of there. And we needed to do that in order to be rescued. Had we not called them, you know, they're, they're not just cruising between, you know, towns every, every day just looking to see if anyone needs to be rescued. There's nothing out there. There are hundreds of kilometers of just desert. We needed to call them in order to be rescued. And so knowing that God is the author of salvation leads us to do exactly what all the other saints in every place do. We call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, God's people often called upon His name whenever they were in need. That's what this language is kind of making us think about. A good example of this is Joel chapter 2, verses 32, which Peter quotes in his sermon in Acts 2, where it says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And just like in verse 8, Paul takes this idea uh, uh, and unconventionally for a Jew inserts Jesus' name into it. Does it again. He says, you don't just call upon the name of the Lord, you call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul is saying that uh, today we recognize, just as the Israelites in the Old Testament did, that we are helpless. We recognize that we cannot rescue ourselves, and so we call upon Jesus' name. And that right there is the crux of this message that we call the gospel. That we humans, we are dead in our sin. And we are completely helpless to bring about our own rescue from sin. We are on the Titanic. And there is no life raft. There are no life jackets. We need a rescuer. We need a saviour. We need someone to come along and to keep us from being buried in the sea. But there's a problem with this picture. It sounds like the gospel. But you see, if, if you really were on the Titanic, in a completely hopeless situation like that, uh, I'm pretty sure that you would be ecstatic to see a rescue ship just emerge out of the darkness. <laughs> like, thank you. Oh, it was almost shark food, but thank you. But actually, it's... It's not the case with our sinful hearts. The reality is, so often this message, this, this good news that there is a rescuer and that there is somebody who can save you from this sinking ship, so often it's just met with pitiless indifference. Most people hear that message and they say, what, what are you talking about? What Titanic? I'm not... What sin? I'm not, a, I'm not on a sinking ship. Others will say, oh, well, if that's the case, bring it on. Who cares? I'm going to party all the way into the Atlantic Ocean. So often the good news of the gospel, including its warnings, 
falls on ignorant and stubborn hearts that would rather sink into the sea than be rescued by the Redeemer. Too often, people cling to their own sin and would rather do that than cling to Jesus and his salvation. Friends, don't be one of them today. If you're not a Christian this morning, I urge you, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin and trust in Him. That's what He came to live and die for, so that you might call upon His name, so that you might, on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, be guiltless before Him. And if you are a Christian, continue to call upon His name because His Spirit is still at work in you and He delights to make you more and more like Him. This is what we must do. Because if we don't, if we don't keep calling upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we'll keep striving, we'll keep, we'll keep seeking to, to please God and doing that without His grace. We'll be trying to save ourselves. If you aren't calling upon the name of the Lord, then, then you could very well be trying to do this on your own. Don't forget God's grace is the engine of our rescue. And without it, we're, we're like the Flintstones car. You're just trying to power that thing along with your own feet. That brings me to my next sub-point. We respond to Him by being holy. Let's go back in verse 2 a little bit. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together. Now, in case you're wondering, this isn't the Roman Catholic understanding of the word saint. It confused me quite a lot when I was a kid. A saint, according to Paul's use here, doesn't refer to someone who is, who is morally superior and who's done supernatural works of kindness like Mother Teresa. That's not what Paul is talking about. He is saying here that, that every person who has responded to the gospel in repentance and in faith is sanctified by God and made a saint. Every person. Another translation would be holy ones. Some translations will translate it that way because of the confusion. We talked uh, earlier how, how God does this and calls and does so effectively. We're saying how that's what God is doing. But there is also another sense in which we ought to understand this phrase. And that is that God's church, these sanctified ones, these sanctified ones are called to be saints. Called to be saints. God's people who are sanctified in Christ Jesus are I just said that, called to be saints. And so this, this language, it actually evokes uh, memories of the book of Leviticus, uh, which uh, lays out the rituals and the sacrifices that the, Levit the Levitical priests would carry out in order for them to be holy. And so several times in that book, God commands them, be holy as I am holy, which is something that Peter picks up in his letter in 1 Peter 1, 14 to 16. He says, as obedient children... 
Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is risen, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And so our response to God's rescuing work in our lives is to live in accordance with what he has already made us. Let me say that again. Our response to God's rescuing work in our lives is to live in accordance with what he has already made us. Or another way of putting that is God has called us to be saints because by grace we already are saints. And that's why we have the rest of the letter of 1 Corinthians. Paul is able to tell his church, that this church, that they are sanctified in Christ, even though it's chaotic. And he goes on to then instruct and to challenge them to live lives that reflect what God has already made them. It's a work that will be fully finished on the day of the Lord, but in the meantime, his people are called to pursue living holy lives. Let me share with you one of my favorite quotes on this by Don Carson. People do not drift toward holiness apart from grace-driven effort. Grace-driven effort. People do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. And so I ask you, what is the next grace-driven step toward holiness that you need to take this week? What is the next grace-driven step toward holiness that you need to take this week? Remember, whatever stage you're at, there is, there is bountiful grace for you. But perhaps you need to call upon the name of the Lord to just help you spend five minutes in the Word each day and in prayer. Maybe you need to call upon Jesus' name to be more patient with your kids. Maybe you need to ask God to help you stand firm in what the Bible says, even against intense opposition. Maybe you need the Lord's help to be content in knowing Him. Are you putting as much effort into spiritual training as you are into physical training? And if you're putting zero effort into physical training, are you putting a lot of effort into spiritual training? Because the alternative is to drift, not towards holiness, but away from it. 
to drift not towards being more set apart for the Lord in your life, but less. And the devil would love for you to drift. Your own sinful heart wants you to drift. My own sinful heart wants me to drift. And so by His grace, we call upon His name and we press on to grow in holiness. Brothers and sisters, don't give up because we respond to our rescuer by being holy. And finally, we respond by thanking God for His grace. By thanking God for His grace. Do you remember what verse 4 says? I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. If you're looking at your life and you're wondering where the grace of God is, take heart. Be encouraged. The Corinthian church certainly wasn't the kind of church that you could walk into and say, oh yeah, these are godly people. And yet Paul sees the grace of God in their lives. And so should you. If you have been rescued by God, by His amazing, undeserved grace, then you have an eternity's worth of material to thank Him for. And you, like Paul, can be thankful for His grace in others' lives, in the lives of your brothers and sisters in your church. And let that be an encouragement to you. I know that I certainly have been and continue to be so encouraged by our church. I continue to be so encouraged by the conversations that I've had with all of you and in seeing the way that God is at work in your life. I'm so thankful to God for that. And even though sometimes it's hard and it's painful and it's challenging, we rejoice and we thank God all along because we know that through all of that, Christ is making us more holy. God is doing that great work in us. And so we thank Him for it because it is evidence that He is preparing us to present us mature and guiltless before Him on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let that spur you on and encourage you as you respond to Him. Every single one of us are stuck and stranded in a spiritual desert in the middle of nowhere. And we are utterly helpless to bring about our own rescue. But God, by His grace, He has saved us in Christ Jesus. How will you respond to so great a rescue? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you are our great rescuer. You are the one who, by your grace, gave us your Son so that we may be sanctified and called 
to be saints so that we may be presented guiltless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, may every single one of us respond to this great and wonderful news. May we respond by calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, by living and striving by your grace to be more holy. And may we be thankful, God. May we continue to lift up thankful hearts for this wonderful grace that you have shown to us. May your spirit keep working in us as we respond to you in Jesus' name. Amen.